Well, tonight we're thinking about this big question, what does the Bible say about alcohol? And instead of having just one reading, we have three different readings this evening from the Bible. Our first comes from the book of Proverbs and Proverbs 23. So if you're using one of, the, uh, one of our Pew Bibles, uh, you'll find the reading on page 545. We're going to read Proverbs 23, verses 29 to 35. And then we're going to turn over to the New Testament and read a few verses from John's Gospel. So our first reading comes from Proverbs 23. We're beginning at verse 29. It's page 545 of our Pew Bibles. And this is the Lord's word to us. Proverbs 23, beginning at verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine, those who, who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perver perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. And then we're turning over to John's gospel and to John chapter 2. Uh, John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And you'll find that passage on page 887 of the Pew Bibles, page 887. Now, this is the story of Jesus at the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. We're told, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now, became, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And then one final reading, just one verse, and it comes from John chapter 10. So just flick over a few pages to John chapter 10, to page 896 of the Pew Bibles, and we're going to read John 10, verse 10. John 10, verse 10, page 896 of the Pew Bibles. Really simple words of Jesus here. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Amen. We thank God for his word to us this evening.
Well, at this point, we're going to take our Bibles and think about this big question. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Uh, you'll need to turn up two of the passages that we read, Proverbs 23 and John chapter 2. You might want to keep your finger in both of those. We'll be referring to both of them, but not looking at them in any great detail, slightly different style of sermon tonight. Uh, Proverbs 23 is on page 545 of the Pew Bibles, and John 2 is on page 887. But before we think about this issue, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for its clarity, and for how it tells us about how we are to live in this world. And we thank you that it covers the issue of alcohol, and we pray that as we think about this issue tonight, that you would give us great wisdom Help us to carefully consider what your word says. Help us to come to good and godly conclusions. And may Jesus be lifted high through all that we say and do this evening. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight we're starting this next series on big questions that are often asked of the Christian faith. Uh, we've had two series like this before in my time here. I think they've been helpful for us. It's good to occasionally pull back from an expository series to think more broadly about what the Bible teaches about a certain topic or issue. As, I've said this, as I said this morning, this series of big questions will concentrate more on moral or ethical issues. I haven't quite planned out what question is ne next, but that's the direction in which we're moving. Uh, this series will also feature some questions that our young people have. So on the Vibe weekend, last weekend, I asked our young people to write down one big question that they have about the Christian faith. I took all of their answers in, and over the next few months, we're going to think about some of the questions that they had. Now, tonight we're starting this series by thinking about the issue of alcohol. What does the Bible say about alcohol? Now, you don't need me to tell you that this is a loaded question. Alcohol is one of those issues that is always in the news. Whether it's an accident that has been caused by alcohol or a crime that has been committed because of alcohol, it makes regular appearances on the news. Our culture has something of a love-hate relationship with alcohol. People love it and live for the weekend when they can go out and drink it as much as they want. But, but, but people also know that it's bad, it's addictive, and can be very dangerous. Uh, alcohol is a major problem in our society and an expensive one. Uh, I was looking at some statistics during the week about alcohol-related deaths in Northern Ireland. In 2012, there were 270 such deaths in our province. In 2019, there were 336 alcohol-related deaths. And in 2020, there were 351 alcohol-related deaths. Uh, two things are notable from those figures. First of all, there was a significant jump in the number of alcohol-related deaths in less than 10 years, 270 in 2012 to 351 in 2020. Secondly, the figure is also rising year on year. So 270, 366, uh, 351, it's, it's always increasing year by year. It's also worth remembering that during the COVID lockdowns, off-licenses were allowed to stay open while it was recommended that churches should be closed there would have been an outcry had off licenses been shut, but no one blinked when it came to churches closing our doors. Our culture has something of a love-hate relationship with alcohol, and Christians have a complicated relationship with alcohol as well. 
Specifically, Christians in Northern Ireland have a complicated relationship with alcohol. I was speaking to a friend this week about this sermon, and he pointed out that Christians in England would find it strange to hear a sermon on this topic. Uh, Christians in Northern Ireland have had some titanic disagreements on this issue. Some have called alcohol the devil's buttermilk. Others have given a license to people that isn't theirs to give. Uh, When I was a student at university, this was one of the raging topics of the day. It probably still is. The eternal debate was, could Christians drink and could they go to nightclubs or could they not? And there were awkward, awkward situations where some Christians were coming out of nightclubs while others were standing on the street serving tea and coffee and, and giving out tracts to late night revelers. Our opening question in this series is a loaded one. It's a, it's a complicated one. But what does the Bible say about alcohol? How, how are we to actually view it? Is alcohol something that Christians must stay away from? Or can Christians drink? Those are the issues that we're going to explore tonight. As we said already, Christians disagree about this issue, but we're going to start by talking about what Christians agree on. All Christians agree that drunkenness is wrong. That's really the first main thing that we need to say. Drunkenness is wrong. The Bible leaves us in no doubt about that. It both tells us directly and illustrates that point through stories. We're told directly that drunkenness is wrong, is sinful in Ephesians 5:18. It says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It is helpful to explain why drunkenness is wrong. We are made to relate to God, and if we're Christians, we're to be both self-controlled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And drunkenness is removing that control. The rest of Ephesians 5:18 and into verse 19 says. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. If we're Christians, if the Holy Sp- it is the Holy Spirit who is to control our lives. The Bible directly tells us that drunkenness is wrong, and it also illustrates this point through stories. It tells us stories of people who get drunk, and do foolish things. So a good example is Noah. After the success of the ark, Noah makes some wine and gets drunk and disgraces himself before his sons. Uh, you can read that story in Genesis 8, 18 to 29. Uh, and the Bible links a whole host of negative things with drunkenness. Things like mockery, brawling, poverty, murder, corruption, nakedness, gluttony, madness, escapism, and depression. Those are all things that we we see today that are often connected to the abuse of alcohol. It's not surprising then that there's a whole strand of biblical teaching that denounces those who go this way. So listen, uh, for example, to Isaiah 5 verse 11. It says, "'Woe to those who rise early in the morning "'that they may run after strong drink, "'who tarry late into the evening,' as wine inflames them. And then a little further on in that passage, verse 22, it says, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. There are lots of passages and examples of verses like that. Proverbs 23, which we read earlier and which you should have a finger in, describes the sorry state of someone who appears to be dependent on alcohol. 
If you have that passage in front of you, it would be really helpful because I want to highlight just a few things from it. You'll see that it begins with a really poignant question and answer format. The questions come in verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who is complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eye? The answer comes in verse 30. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine. It's poignant because those are things that you see in someone's physical appearance after heavy drinking, redness of eyes and so on. But it's also poignant because it tells us about the impact an abuse of alcohol can have on other people. Woes and sorrows and strife and complaining. The, the, the writer tells us more about what will happen when you abuse alcohol. Verse 33 says, your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. A drunken person doesn't see clearly. In other words, they, they can't perceive the cause and effect connections of events. And that mention of the heart is also very striking. One of the things that we talk about a lot in church is the posture of our hearts. Our hearts are the control center of our lives, the, the steering wheel, if you like. But our heart is affected in the most terrible way by alcohol abuse. Perverse things spring from the heart when it's under the influence. Then there's a picture in verse 34. It's of someone who is on the top of a mast of a ship. Now, this is a notoriously unstable place to stay. And the point the writer is making is that if you're drunk, you'll be unstable. But there may also be a hint at the nausea that is experienced following an abuse of alcohol. So in terms of what the Bible teaches about alcohol, there's very clearly a negative strand running throughout it. But there is another strand in which alcohol is seen more positively. Wine is described as a gift of God. So listen to Psalm 104, 14 and 15. It says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is also used as a picture of God's blessing. So for example, in Isaiah 25 verse 6, there's a vision of God's final perfect kingdom. And we're told on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And in addition to all of that, we see Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. We read that story earlier together. Alcohol in Jesus' day was different to the alcohol that is available now. But we should notice and remember that Jesus doesn't turn the wine into water. He turns the water into wine. He doesn't turn the water into slur either. He turns the water into wine, into alcohol. We also see him using wine at the Last Supper. And we see him living a life in which he's accused of being a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We know, of course, that he wasn't a glutton and a drunkard or a sinner. He was perfect. And that was simply an accusation that was made about him by his enemies. A final positive reference to alcohol comes in Paul's instructions to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23. Paul says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Paul tells Timothy to use alcohol 
to help with a medical issue that he is facing. So in the Bible, there's a a strand of negative teaching about alcohol, but there's also this positive strand. Now, where does all of that leave us? Well, as we've said, it leaves us with an issue that Christians disagree on. And down through the years, and even today, Christians have fallen into three broad camps. Let me talk you through those three broad camps. First of all, there are prohibitionists. Prohibitionists argue that all drinking is sinful and teach that alcohol itself is evil. Prohibitionists, and they argue that all drinking is sinful and teach that alcohol itself is evil. Now, I've heard people say that sort of thing, but having had a quick look at what the Bible teaches, we can say that the Bible doesn't teach this. It's reasonable enough to assume that Jesus drank wine, so we really can't say that all drinking is sinful in and of itself. Prohibitionists argue that these references to wine in the Bible are actually references to grape juice or unfermented wine. So they argue that Jesus turned the water into unfermented wine at the wedding of Cana. They say that the word can either mean grape juice or wine, and you have to let the context decide. Basically, they say if it's negative, it's alcohol, uh, alcoholic wine, and if it's positive, it's grape juice. And to be honest, that's an awful way to handle the Bible. And the vast weight of biblical scholarship is against those who take this kind of view. Uh, This theory is sometimes called the two-wine theory, and it seems to have emerged in the 19th century during the Prohibition movement. It's an example of people wanting the Bible to say something that it doesn't and reading what they want it to say into it. Uh, Another argument used by prohibitionists is that the wine of the Bible wasn't as strong as the wine of today. Sometimes it was the case that wine was diluted, but it was still capable of making a person drunk. If it wasn't, the Bible's warnings against drunkenness wouldn't have been necessary. So that's the prohibitionist position. It doesn't really seem to stand up to Scripture. The second group, the second broad camp, are abstentionists. Now, I've spelt that wrong on the screen. I've put in an extra A and a T. Abstentionists. But abstentionists recognize that the Bible has a positive strand of teaching about alcohol. They say that drinking is not necessarily sinful, but they say that all Christians should avoid drinking out of love for others and a desire not to cause others to stumble. Now, that initially sounds very good, but the problem is that it doesn't stack up against the evidence of the Bible. It is the case that Christians ought to limit their freedom if they are with fellow believers who would be caused to stumble by this. Romans 14, 21 says, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And Paul also talks about a similar issue in 1 Corinthians 8. He talks about restricting one's freedom for the sake of the weaker brother who is a Christian and who believes that eating idle meat is sinful. We have a responsibility to one another, but to take that specific responsibility and say that means it's wrong for any Christian to drink at any time is not what the Bible says. For example, when Paul tells Timothy about the sort of people who should be set apart as elders in 1 Timothy 3, he talks about those who are not addicted to much wine, but he doesn't say choose people who never drink for the sake of others. There's a very nuanced difference there. While the Bible says this is how you're to behave in this circumstance, it's not saying this is how you must behave in all circumstances. 
So the prohibitionist position doesn't stand up to scripture. The abstentionist position doesn't really either. Is there a middle ground? Well, there is. Thirdly, there are moderationists. Moderationists say that drinking is not necessarily sinful and that Christian conscience must guide each person about what personal stance to take. So some Christians will say, the Bible allows me to drink and not get drunk. I choose to drink. Other Christians will say, the Bible allows me to drink and not get drunk. I choose to drink. If either of those decisions are reached with the proper attitude, then they're equally proper positions to take. What we ought to remember is that we ought to act in love towards the, the, the person with the other position. We shouldn't condemn them for the position they come to, and we shouldn't try and force our position on them either. A very, very helpful passage on how we're to be with one another when we differ on these sorts of issues is found in Romans 14. The main issue Paul had in mind when writing was food. Christians were, were probably disagreeing over, over the Jewish dietary laws. It's a similar passage in 1 Corinthians 8, but that was food sacrificed to idols. These passages help us to see how the Bible says we're to deal with one another when we opt for different positions. Let me read a, a little bit of Romans 14. You might find it helpful to read through it in more detail after the service. This is Romans 14, verses 1 to 4. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him to stand. Uh, let me just say something about that reference to the weak. The weak in Romans 14 is not someone who is likely to stumble into sin by another Christian's example. Uh, we often talk about the weaker brother in that way, someone who would be led to drink, for example. In, in Romans 14, the weaker brother is the person who has scruples about food. They haven't accepted that they're free to eat. Now, we don't have time to read the whole chapter or, or talk about the whole chapter, but the movement and flow of it is that Paul says that both eating and nodding, not eating can be the right approach for people depending on their conscience. And along with that, he paints a wonderful picture of believers who care for one another and who don't argue and offend and who also avoid causing others to stumble. I would put it to you this evening that this is what the Bible teaches about alcohol. It's really clear that drunkenness is wrong. There's a hard boundary, a red line there. But drinking alcohol may not be wrong. Each of us must use wisdom and see how we might best glorify God in our own lives, in what we eat and drink and in how we live. For some of us, that will lead us to say, this is not for me. And others will say, this is okay with appropriate moderation. And in taking either position, we must be able to care for others who differ with us and we're able to glorify God ourselves. Now, you're maybe wondering, what do you do, Stephen? And I've toyed whether or not I answer this. I'm not going to, and here's why. I think it's the only thing you might remember 
if I tell you. The minister does this. For you, it doesn't really matter what I do. What matters is what you do and where you land on this issue. You've got to think it through for yourself. And that's especially true if you're a young person here tonight. There will come a point where you will be in a situation where you have a decision to make about alcohol. What do you believe? Where do you stand? You've got to have the answer now so that you're prepared for that moment. We're nearly done. Having thought this issue through, let me wrap up with a few points of application. These won't take too long. The first point is that it's wrong to drink when it's against the law. There are very good reasons why laws prohibit young people from drinking. Alcohol has a terribly detrimental effect on growing bodies and brains. The Bible tells us that we're to glorify God, and so we must obey the laws of the land. So if you're underage, it's always wrong to drink. Secondly, we must think about the context. Now let me explain what I mean by that. There's a big difference between a glass of wine with a meal where people can take it or leave it, and a happy hour at a bar where the purpose is to get people to buy and drink as much alcohol as possible. Huge difference. There's a time for Christians to say, I can't be part of that. Some of us need to spend more time with unsafe friends, but some of us need to be more distinctive from the world. There are lines that we cannot cross, and there are some places that are not helpful for us to be. As we work through where we draw the lines, we need each other's help to make good decisions. Thirdly, we must examine our hearts. Sometimes Christians, especially younger Christians, can have wrong ideas going on in their hearts with regard to alcohol. They drink in order to fit in or to look cool or to flaunt their freedom or to to minimize the cost of following Jesus. But all of those things are wrong. Romans 14, 23 says that everything that doesn't come from faith is sin, so motives matter. The posture of our heart matters. And then fourthly, there's hope for those who have messed up. Maybe some of us are here tonight and we've used alcohol in ways that have been or are very wrong and we know it and we feel condemned. Maybe some of us feel that it's got a grip of us. There is a way out. Medically, physically, but most of all, spiritually. Do you remember how Jesus, when he was on the cross, refused wine mixed with gall? It it was a pain-killing mixture. Proverbs 31 verse 6 says, Give strong drink to the one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Jesus was in anguish, yet he refused the the wine mixed with gall. Why? Why? People sometimes drink or take drugs to escape, but there was no escape for Jesus. He was fully present in all that he went through, and he didn't escape so that we could. He was fully in control on the cross so that one day we can be under his control. And he brings the very things that we really cry out for. Do you know, it's genuinely one of the saddest things to see people finding their hope in the bottom of a glass or a bottle. My favorite music group is the Manchester-born group Oasis. Uh, Most of you will know the song Wonderwall. Some of you might know Don't Look Back in Anger. Uh, Another well-known song by Oasis is Cigarettes and Alcohol. 
It was the anthem of millions in the 1990s. It's a bouncy song and it stirs crowds. When Oasis were on tour, they, they filled stadiums and this song reverberated around venues up and down the country. The song started with Liam Gallagher, the lead singer, shaking a tambourine before the main guitar riff kicked in. The opening lyrics of the song go like this. Is it my imagination or have I finally found something worth living for? And then later in the song, there's a line, it's a crazy situation, but all I need are cigarettes and alcohol. It was the anthem, anthem of millions. It still is. It's genuinely one of the saddest things to see people finding their hope in the bottom of a glass or a bottle, because abundant life, love and happiness can be found somewhere else in someone else. That, that's the reason we read John 10, verse 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We've seen how the Bible talks about the woes that alcohol can bring. It's something of a thief. It can steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus, well, he brings life and he brings it in abundance. He brings it in abundance now. You might think that your friends at school or at university are having the time of their life, but they're probably desperately unhappy and are just filling their emptiness with something equally empty. Jesus brings life in abundance now and also in eternity. Listen to Revelation 21 verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The spring of the water of life is the throne of God and the Lamb, a throne of grace, because there the thirsty drink without payment by God's free gift. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Jesus can now, and if we trust him, one day will, spiritually speaking, quench the thirst that we feel so deeply at times. It's genuinely one of the saddest things to see people finding their hope in the bottom of a glass or bottle because abundant life, love and happiness can only be found in Jesus. We're going to pray together in a few moments, but can I just say that if you've been affected by anything that I have said this evening, if you want, to, want me to explain something in more detail, if you want to talk to me about this issue and how it has affected you, please feel as though you can. You can talk to me after the service. You can give me a ring. You can send me a text. But please know that if you need to speak to me, anything you tell me will be treated with the strictest of confidence. That's our first big question of this season then. What does the Bible say about alcohol? It's really important that we think through issues like this. The Bible is God's truth, his, his sure and final word to us. The moment we think we can figure things out by ourselves, it is the beginning of our slide away from Christ. We're, we're going to respond to all that we've thought about this evening by singing about how our God is greater and stronger and awesome in power. Our next hymn is Our God, Water You Turned Into Wine, and we're going to stand and sing it together just now.